and welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I am your host, Pauline Fromer. Thank you for joining me on call-in. We're here every Thursday, usually at 6 p.m., sometimes at 5 p.m., and also this podcast can be heard later on call-in or on other places where podcasts are heard. Today is going to be an unusually, hmm, I think joyous is the right word, an unusually joyous show because I just had the pleasure of reading one of the most insightful, life-affirming, really fun new books. It's called How to Be Italian, Eat, Drink, Dress, Travel, and Love La Dolce Vita. And the author, Maria Pasquale, is here with me. Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Maria. Oh, thank you so much, Pauline, and for your gorgeous words. Thank you. Oh, well, I really, you know, tonight I'm going to take a passaggiato here in New York City. <laughs> You've really inspired me with this book. Tell people a little bit about your background and how it led you to write the book. Okay, so I'm a, a Melbourne girl, born and uh, bred. You can hear by my accent, probably. Yes. So born and born and raised in Melbourne, Australia, but to two Italian parents. So my uh, parents were both born in Abruzzo, the region that is uh, to the east of about an hour and a half east of Rome on the Adriatic coast. They were um, both born in the same town and they emigrated to Australia respectively in the late 50s and late 60s. So they've lived in Australia for over 50 years. We were, like I said, my siblings and I born and raised here. But as children, we travelled back to Italy uh, quite a number of times because my paternal grandparents never never emigrated. So we always had Italian nonni, you know, mm. grandparents. And mm. so, you know, our ties to Italy were very strong. And as I, you know... Uh, you know, went through life, I think that Italy has, um, you know, it's just always felt like home to me because it's just been always such a part of my life, um, you know, since I was born. So I grew up bilingual. I grew up in a home that spoke Italian, ate Italian, followed Italian customs and traditions. And, you know, I've just always had this affinity with Italy. And I moved to the Eternal City, to Rome, mm. in 2011, uh, where I've lived ever since. Um, I'm currently in Melbourne because I've spent the holidays here, but heading back to Rome very soon. And I've lived there for 11 years, like I said, as a food and travel writer yeah. and had two books come out in the meantime. And I'm just thrilled to be able to talk to you about how to be Italian. Well, you take on a very difficult task in this book. You try to get to the essence of what it is to be Italian. And you said something I've never heard before, but it makes so much sense, that one of the great things about being Italian is Italians have a respect for excellence. And part of that comes from the fact that they have a classical education. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how Italians are raised and, and what they learn in school and how that affects their mindset? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's one of my favourite chapters in the book is how the Italians think, because, you know, until you really get to understand and go deep into what it is that makes the Italians tick, only then can you understand, you know, what it means to be Italian or, you know, how, what it is that defines Italianness. And so I think, obviously, you know, it, it comes a lot from what you learn from the home in terms of uh, family uh, tradition, 
uh, values and all of those sorts of customs. But the classic Italian education, I mean, I believe, look, I wasn't educated in Italy, but, you know, from what I've learnt from family, from friends and from living in the country, you know, the the arts, uh, history and all the classics. So many of my friends will be able to cite a Latin or a Greek phrase, um, Hmm. you know, just within, you know, their day-to-day conversation, things that I at least... Um, in an, you know, having an Australian education and what I've right. heard from, you know, American friends and friends who had, a, you know, an, educa- an English education, I guess, uh, very different. You know, the average Italian, I believe, knows so much more about the history of their country and not just things about, you know, the, you know, the ancient classics like, you know, the origins of the Roman Empire or, you mm-hmm. know, why, you know, when the Colosseum was built. But they, they just have this, uh, you know, understanding. My father, you know, he's lived in Australia for over 50 years and he still talks to me um, about the things that he learnt at a, at a primary school level or mm. an elementary school level in Italy. And those are things about war, about... Um, you know, the foundation of Italy. So I think Italians, uh, you know, are blessed in that sense in terms of the the education that they have, which leads them, of course, to be open to having, um, you know, a a real dynamic life education. Absolutely. Well, not only are they one of the few people who I think know their own history and know it going back pretty far because they're blessed in having a history that was so central to the Western tradition. But they also study philosophy, and so which which very few people do anymore. And so they have a philosophical approach to life, which is uh, dilute, not diluted, but uh, distilled in a lot of the different phrases you you cite in the book, like "dolce far niente." Uh, <laughs> One of my favorites. Yes, tell our our listeners who might not know what that means, what it means, and how it applies to the Italian way of life. Well, the dolce far niente translates literally to the sweetness of doing nothing or the sweet Hmm. nothing. And I think a lot of listeners and not just American listeners will be, you know, might be familiar with uh, one of the scenes that was so famously, you know, where it was famously cited um, as a concept in, you know, with Julia Roberts in Eat, Pray, Love, where you have Hmm. this, you know, I guess in a sense, this cliche scene where the Italian says to the American, you don't know how to stop. You don't know how to, all you do is work. All you Americans do is work. You don't know how to stop. And, you know, in a sense, you know, smell the, wait and smell the roses or smell the coffee or whatever it is, that phrase that we use. Right. And I guess the dolce far niente is, the, you know, the Italian installment of this, you know, and I won't say buzzword of late, but I guess, you know, of idleness of um, and not just wellness, but the art of stopping and the art of doing nothing, not doing, but being. Right. And so I think that the Italians practice that and not just in their, you know, their summer holidays, but, you know, in the in the Italian, I guess, um, custom of stopping to have a coffee at any time. Mm -hmm. Like it's actually fashion. I mean, Italians arrive fashionably late, I guess, to almost anything. (laughs) And it's it's acceptable, even if you arrive to a meeting or an important appointment. Um, as I also say in the book, if you say that, you, you know, if you say to your guest or to your, the person that you're meeting with that you're late because you stopped off to get a coffee, that is culturally acceptable because wow. why, wouldn't you, why wouldn't you stop off to get a coffee? Again, sure. That is the dolce far niente, the art of, you know, appreciating, taking time for yourself and, you know, just stopping and taking a moment. And taking time for your friends and loved ones. You talk in the book Absolutely. about the confidence of these people. They know they come from excellence and they strive for excellence. 
but they also have confidence in themselves as Italians and that these traditions have meaning and that, that one should take the time to, to live life to the fullest, uh, partially because there's so much beauty all around. The, oh, another fascinating part of the book that I had never realized before, when you go to Italy as an outsider, especially Rome, you see churches everywhere. And in Rome... Mm-hmm. You know, you see a clergyman or a nun on every corner. Yes. It feels like, <laughs> oh boy, is this a Catholic country. And it is and it isn't in the yeah, way absolutely. you describe it. Uh, and, and talk about that dichotomy and, and how superstition plays a role and how the saints play a role, but yet it's not the most religious country anymore. I think that speaks to one of the themes that, you know, is a thread throughout the book, the contrasts and the contradictions of Italy. It's one of the things I love the most. Yes, you know, this, uh, like you said, seemingly, I mean, it is, I mean, it's a secular nation, but it's such a Catholic country where up until recently it took more than three years to become divorced. I mean, Mm. divorce, you know, divorce wasn't even legal up until I think, I mean, you know, I can't remember the date now, but until probably about 30 years ago. Right. So, you know, and, you know, living in Rome, you know, it's so visible because, of course, you have the Vatican, you know, you're in the shadow of the Vatican. But so many of these things impact daily life. So, uh, you know, Vatican law and Roman law. So, you know, there aren't any skyscrapers people will know in Rome. And I mean, I wouldn't want to see any in Rome, I don't think, with the the beautiful landscape that it has. (laughs) But the very reason for that is that no Roman building um, is permitted to be uh, taller than the Dome of St. Peter's. Hmm. And so, you know, so many Romans, while they don't go to church, perhaps on the weekend, they would know that. And it, you know, it infiltrates things like uh, food and the way the Romans eat. Um, on a Thursday, we eat gnocchi in Rome because gnocchi, uh, you know, the Italian uh, potato dumpling, yes. is, you know, was traditionally and historically a way for Catholics to carb load because they, you know, they would eat fish or they would, they would uh. fast on a Friday. Now, most Romans, if you ask them why they eat, you know, so many of them, you ask them why they eat gnocchi on a Thursday, they might not even be able to tell you that story. So, you know, religion and culture are so intertwined in Italy. Yes. Well, you talk about the fact that only about 20% of Italians go to church regularly, which was a shocking statistic for me to read. That's right, but they do, but for the most part, they would identify with being Catholic. Mm. Um, You know, like I said, look, I was born and raised a Catholic, but I'm not relatively practicing. I don't go to church each week. You know, the saints, you mentioned the saints earlier, the saints, the superstitions, the stars also, (laughs) which um, in a sense is, uh, you know, Italians follow the astrological stars um, and signs, and they want to know what your your rising sun is and your, you know, your, your rising moon. And that is not a, that's not a new thing either. I mean, historically. And that's not Catholic. And it's not Catholic, but, you know, farmers would, uh, you know, and people that worked in agriculture would look to the stars in terms of their, you know, defining and determining their harvest. But, you know, the stars I associate again, yes, superstition, which, Mm -hmm. you know, comes back to a number of things in religion. So, you know, not leaving your hat on the bed or uh, shoes on the table relate back to, um, you know, superstitions that Italians have about the priest walking in and leaving a hat on the bed because it denotes death, because that would be when the priest would come and give somebody their last rites. And he would take off his hat and put it on the bed. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, astrology is actually booming worldwide. It's not just Italy. It's huge here, too, and, and in other countries I've read. It's, it's one of the biggest 
trends. In terms of the saints, it seems like every time I'm in Italy, suddenly I don't realize it, but it's some saint's birthday uh, or saint's day, and suddenly people are, are parading through the streets and places are closed that I expect to be open. And uh, uh, I've never seen as many, well, maybe in Spain too, actually, in Spain as well. But it seems like that... That part of Catholicism is still mm. very much embraced and celebrated. The saints' yeah, days and, and, and the I saints' agree. festivals, and I, think that, and I think that would you know be commonly found. I mean, not just so much across the Mediterranean, but across Catholic countries. But you know, I say in the book that nobody beaches like the Italians. But I mean, I could have said that about. I could interchange that word with nobody. Hmm. You know, like a, a religious festival, like you said, and there's lesagre, lesagre, also feast days. And whether they be celebrated with food, I mean, there's always usually food uh, there, <laughs> of hmm. course. But, yes. You know, the saints' days. I mean, I love San Giuseppe, which is Saint Joseph, and Saint, you know, Joseph in the Bible was the father, and so Saint Joseph is Father's Day in Italy, hmm. and that's in March. And there is a particular sweet that we eat for that day. So I can't wait for that sweet to appear in all the pasticceria and the pastry shops around the country. So Italy has this um, beautiful way of tying not only religion but um you know uh, like i said feast days and food and culture and family and tradition in in a way that um it really does feed the soul right yes absolutely well we're talking about the the good part of italy uh but there there you know there are downsides to being an italian too uh at one of them you kind of describe as the organized chaos of being in Italy. And there have been times where, you know, as somebody who comes from maybe a more Germanic tradition, you walk into a place, you expect to see a line or a queue, uh, and you can't tell what the heck's going on. Everybody's just kind of standing around waiting to get, you know, in front of a ticket window, and you, you have no idea what place in line you're in. No, you, look, you can only be Italian or have lived in Italy to understand an Italian queue. So at a pharmacy <laughs> or, or at a, you know, if you're going to a medical suite for an appointment, you know, you will often just walk in and Italians will always say good morning, you know, announce good morning, even amongst strangers, and hmm. then ask, chi è l'ultimo, who is last? And so somebody will put up their hand and you just know that that person is before you. You don't know if they're number seven in the queue, if they're number nine. It just, look, you know, Italy has this, and for me, I mean, you know, like you said, you know, in terms of, um, you know, foreigners coming to Italy, I was raised in an Italian family, but I was still raised in Australia. So we have a very different way of um, of organisation and, sure. and queuing and, um, you know, bureaucracy. So there are many, many days where I, you know, throughout my living in Italy where I say, oh gosh, no, I'm for a moment there, I'm like, I'm not Italian, I'm so Australian, I can't tolerate this. Because it does become um, quite frustrating um, if you're not used to it and also if you don't know the system. And I, I do say that Italy, it's not perfect, no country is, but so many aspects of it are. But the systems, the bureaucracy, you, it does work in a particular way. You just have to kind of understand how. Well, and it may feel like it doesn't work, and there is a lot of red tape in terms of Absolutely. the Italian government bureaucracies, but it may feel more like it doesn't work because the Italians love to complain, oh, as you do. say. It's an they art do. form. 
It is an art form, and I say, I mean, you know, it's, I think soccer, I would say, is the national sport, but I often joke that, you know, complaining, has, you know, gives it a good run hmm. for its money. And it's not in a complaining, like, in a, you know, looking for sympathy kind of way, I have to say, at least in my experience. And I do say this in the book, it's in this kind of a, hey, we're all in this together. I mean, you know, like, why, what do you mean you're not complaining? Like, or it's, you know, it's this, and not a refusal to accept I guess, you know, control or of government or, um, you know, authority. But, you know, I'll have, you know, Roman friends who will say, oh, how much did they make you pay for that? You know, even mm. though I've chosen to buy something. So it's this complaining of, again, like I said, we're all in this together and, um, you know, it's us against them. Like, tell me how your day went. <laughs> right. Yes. And you also have a, a chapter, as you had to, on food, Italian food. Of what, one of the things I was unaware of was how many of the foods we consider Italian today actually came from ancient Rome. You always go to, if you go to an archaeological museum, there will always be a big container like like thing that was Ooh. for ancient uh, fish sauce. That, that was a huge yes, thing. Garum. Garum still exists today. The ancient Roman fish sauce is part of current cuisine. So can you talk a little bit about that and it the does. other things that come from the ancient Romans? Absolutely. Garum, I mean, I ate this in, uh, and you know, across Italy, but, um, you know, people might be familiar with a town called Cittada, or at least they'll be familiar with the Amalfi Coast. Cittada is a small town on the Amalfi Coast. And, uh, you know, it's quite um, traditional there to eat collatura di alici, which is like an extract of, um, like you said, it's this ancient fish oil. It's the oil that used to drain from having the anchovies or the, you know, the fish being cured. And so, you know, things like grains and spices, so many things that came that have its origins in the Roman Empire. And not just, you know, like if you look at a region like Sicily, um, which has been, you know, you've, you've had the Arabs, the Normans. Yeah, everybody's so many invaded other cultures it. have exactly have invaded it, have settled there. So I could say to somebody, you know, that couscous is an Italian mm. dish and they might look at me strangely. And, you know, and by conversely, you know, looking at northern Italy, you know, South Tyrol or those northern Alpine regions, apple strudel is the, you know, one of the most common things that you would eat there. Mm. And, you know, commonly people are like, oh, you know, we eat pizza and they, you eat pizza and pasta in Italy. And I always say, well, it's so much more than that. And yeah, that, that chapter in the book, I think, is great and very hard to write because, you know, how do you condense a history of, oh, of yeah. Italian food into just a few pages? But you know, the little the fact history. I loved was uh, <laughs> that Grand Padano cheese was uh, eaten by the ancient Roman armies, I guess, because it was hard and it, they could carry it with them. That's right. It would keep well, you know, and many of the things that we do today in Italy and, you know, those those processes that have become world-renowned, the way you cure meats, the way you store cheese, all date back to the Roman Empire. Right. Which is, you know, incredibly impressive and goes back to that thing you said earlier about a beautiful thing, I think, about the Italians is their generosity of spirit and the fact mm. that while they do have this confidence, I don't believe the Italians, I mean, you know, and obviously even throughout the book, we, you know, we're generalising, we're talking about a population of over 60 million, but I think that generally Italians, despite uh, having millennia of history that, you know, of excellence of some of the greatest composers in the world, the greatest fashion houses, the Ferrari, the Lamborghini, all of these sure. food 
culture and history, they're still not, I don't believe, an arrogant people. I think that their generosity of spirit um, is one of their defining uh, features. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Just a couple more things before I let you go. <laughs> so wine. You, you compare them, uh, the Italian wines to the French wines, and I hadn't realized this. You say that in France, not every region has wine, but the Italians, every single area of Italy grows wine, and so it's more part of the daily life in Italy. It is, and you'll find uh, wine at the table, you know, for, for, in the family home with children from a very young age, mm-hmm. and you know, not getting drunk, of course, but right. you know, children being exposed, and um, and this has, uh, you know, a direct correlation to the fact that Italians, even as adults, generally don't. I mean, you know, look, young kids go out and drink and have a good time like they do, I think, within any, you know, within Anglo uh, and American and Australian culture. But, you know, generally Italians will um, accompany alcohol with food. I mean, hence the reason, you know, the aperitivo is such a, an important, you know, part of sure. the Italian culture. It means to open the stomach. You have that to begin the digestion process and to prepare yourself for dinner. But hmm. wine is, um, I think there is just less taboo around wine from a young age. And that's why Italians have a great relationship with um, alcohol, I believe. They don't go out to get drunk generally they use wine and alcohol to accompany food. It's always about, again, that not just the dolce far niente, perhaps la dolce vita. It's always about enhancing those experiences in life. So wine is an, an enhancer to yeah. accompany your food to make your experience that much better. And it is a, a unique uh, wine country. You know, each region does produce perhaps some less than others, of course, but it, it, every single region uh, produces wine, which is but, uh, one of the only countries in the world that can, um, you know, that can claim that stake. Yes, you say there are 350 varieties of wine. And to get to another topic, 250 hand gestures. I recently had, <laughs> I recently had a, a wonderful author on, Denise Deegan, who wrote a book called Irishisms, which is about how the Irish speak. And there are all kinds of interesting ticks in the way Irish speak English. You know, they'll often repeat phrases. And with the Italians, it uh, they don't need to repeat phrases so that their brains can catch up with their mouths. Instead, it just comes out in gestures which are as understandable as any word. Yeah, and look, there would never, I'd never think, I don't think there would ever be a quiet Italian conversation. (laughs) Italians are known for being quite loud or at least being heard. But by, you know, having said that, they could have a conversation just with their hands. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I move my hands so much when I speak, I don't often notice um, until I sometimes see a photo or my hands are always flying away. But, you know, and it's not also just the hand gestures, it's the expression, the facial expressions and it's, uh, you know, it's a language uh, in yes. itself. No, absolutely. And we are, as I said at the this, this start, the Fromer Travel Show, you have a section on how the Italians vacation. And I think we all could learn from the Italians because half the population takes off time in the summer. That is so amazing to us Americans because uh, I think that the the statistic is something like half Americans don't even take their full vacation time each year because we're so terrified of losing our jobs. Uh, But in the Italian culture, you take vacation. And I love the fact that uh, you don't plan every minute, right? You, You let vacation be a real vacation. 
So much more spontaneous, I find, um, than, yeah, than Americans, than Australians, uh, than the English. I think that Italians, you know, and look, the Italians, uh, don't let that fool you. They have a very unstable labor market. So there are mm. so many Italians who would also, you know, I, I know of Italian friends and colleagues over the years who have been afraid to take a day off work because of mm. losing, fear of losing their job. But having said that, you know, whether even if it's a financial thing, even if you can't really afford it, but you can kind of scrape something together that one week, even or just a few days in August or at least a couple of days around the Ferragosto, the 15th of August, the Ferragosto holiday, which is a national holiday in Italy. I mean, the country, it really is a literal shutdown. Everybody is either, you know, predominantly at the beach. Some people are at the mountains. Some people are in the lakes. But, right. um, you know, that is the untouchable Italian August for Italians. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a beautiful book. For those who are tuning in late, we're talking about the book, How to Be Italian, Eat, Drink, Dress, Travel and Love La Dolce Vita. So I will say ciao. Maria, thank you so much, and I've so enjoyed reading the book. It, it just made my heart light today. Uh, thank you for the great read and the great conversation. Uh, Italy has the ability to do that. Thank you so much, Pauline. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I hope to see you in Italy real soon. Uh, I hope so, too. Thank you. Before I go, I wanted to talk about another major issue in travel and not, not that Italy is an issue. Italy is always our most popular topic. Whenever I was on radio for 20 years and whenever I raised Italy, the phones would light up because everybody wants to talk about Italy. The other topic everybody wants to talk about is sleep because it's something that very few people can do on the road. So I wrote an article about this and about how to outfit your hotel room and outfit your mind so that you can actually get sleep. I spoke with a bunch of sleep experts and also read about the science behind this. And I found out that if you can't sleep, you're not alone. In fact, in sleep labs, they often have people come for several nights because usually nobody sleeps well the first night. It's called first night syndrome. And researchers from Brown University found that while on a normal night's sleep, both sides of the brain start to slumber. When somebody was in a new place on the first night, the left side of the brain stayed awake. Uh, I spoke with a wonderful expert named Sarah Mednick. She's a professor of cognitive sciences at the University of California, Irvine. And she has a, a book coming out called The Power of the Downstate, Recharge Your Life Using Your Body's Own Restorative Systems. And she told me that the reason you're not uh, sleeping is your spidey senses <laughs> are awake. That Because you're in a new environment uh, with new smells, new sounds, it's a new bed, you're constantly going to a very deep evolutionary level and thinking, am I safe? Am I really safe? There are a lot of strangers in this building. Uh, but then uh, she went on to say that you can usually get over that, that it's the reptile part of your brain, the reptile brain that is moving you towards panic and that inform if you can block the information that you're getting from your five senses you can usually 
sleep. Uh, so what does that mean? Well, she said, and this was really surprising, she said that actually one of the main things that goes into overdrive is your olfactory sense, that your nose will actually wake you up from a sound sleep if it smells something odd or different. Now, I guess that's good if there's going to be smoke <laughs> or another dangerous smell and you're in a new place, you want to wake up. But it's going to wake you up also for if, if just the scent of the room is different. And so she recommends bringing the smells of home into your hotel room. So maybe packing a candle if you have that candle in your home or potpourri or a shirt you usually wear to bed. You want to affect your senses so that you can fool your brain in thinking you're at home. I also spoke to a, a professor named Rebecca Robbins. She's also a doctor. She's a sleep scientist at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. She teaches medicine at the Harvard Medical School, and she did a major study. They spoke to 800 travelers about things that went wrong when they traveled that kept them awake. And one of the biggest problems for people was their room being too hot and them not being able to control the temperature. I didn't realize this, but apparently there is an ideal temperature. If you can keep your room between 65 and 68 degrees Fahrenheit, that is the temperature you want it to be because it allows for deeper sleep. As well, you want to pick a room that has a bathtub in it, which is counterintuitive because a lot of hotels to save space have been getting rid of bathtubs. But they're a good thing because if you can soak in the tub, not only is that hugely relaxing, but when you get out, it causes your body temperature to drop precipitously. And that drop in body temperature is what happens when you fall asleep. And so if you can artificially recreate uh, that drop in, in uh, body temp, you are artificially recreating the onset of sleep and it accelerates the process. Other things you want to do, maybe consider bringing your own pillow. In Robin's study, the, the most cited uh, aspect or the most cited culprit for lousy sleep was bad pillows. And it's so easy to pack a pillow. Unfortunately, yeah, it's not easy if you're only bringing a carry-on bag. Uh, but it's a good thing to do, not only because you'll be more comfortable, but because it'll smell like home. If you can't bring your own pillow, maybe look for hotels that have pillow menus. Uh, that allows you to try a, a couple of different pillows uh, and use the one that works for you. That's because, you know, if you're a back sleeper, a slide, side sleeper, or a stomach sleeper, you're going to want to have a different type of pillow. Uh, so this way you get to try different pillows. The mattress is also important. And interestingly, a lot of really high-end hotels, like the Rosewood Hotels, New York City's Park Hyatt Hotels, have been experimenting with artificially, well, I, I, let me say this differently, with mattresses that are AI-enabled, that have artificial intelligence. So you get into the bed and somehow you're able to set it so that it has a springiness that you like and so that it has the temperature that you like. 
And then as you're sleeping, as you're moving around, it is supporting you and giving you the right temperature uh, through artificial intelligence rather than you just leaving it to chance. Now, these sleep suites cost over $1,000 a night, which is something that I know would keep me awake. Uh, So know that there are many chains that are less exorbitantly priced that also have been putting a good amount of money into creating better mattresses. There's Weston's Heavenly Bed. Hilton has a custom-made Serta mattress. There's a site called Sleep Advisor that actually ranks the top hotel mattresses that you can buy. This is another source of income for hotel rooms. People love their mattresses and then they buy them from the hotels. You don't, I'm not saying to do that, but I'm saying that this can be a good cheat sheet for which hotels have decent mattresses, which hotel chains. On the sheets front, you want to ask maybe when you call up, how often are the sheets refreshed? And I don't mean laundered. I mean, when did you last buy new sheets? Because the newer the sheets are, the better they're going to be. They're going to feel crisper. Another big thing I discovered when talking to uh, Dr. Mednick was you are not supposed to drink any liquid three hours before bedtime. Now, I'd always heard that alcohol upsets sleep, but... Dr. Mednick told me that as we age, our circadian rhythms get dampened. When we're young, because our circadian rhythms are so strong and they tell us it's nighttime, go to sleep, we can sleep even if we need to urinate. As we get older, the circadian rhythms become less strong. And if you drink too close to bedtime, you're going to have to get up too many times in the night. So she recommends not drinking anything. As well, you want to be really careful with caffeine. I didn't know this either. Fascinating. Caffeine stays in your body on average 12 hours. So if you drink caffeine at 1 p.m. in the afternoon, you may think, oh, it's nowhere near my bedtime. It could still be keeping you awake. So watch out with your liquids when you're traveling, because uh, you, you just don't want that to, to affect you. As well, light can be a huge keeper-upper in terms of trying to sleep in hotels. And Mednick says it's not just the light at the hotel room. Uh, she says the thing about travel is that you're exposing yourself to light at night. And light at night is the basic, biggest signal for your circadian rhythms that it's not nighttime. So to try and counter the signal disruption, you should wear, she says, sunglasses at night. Maybe consider wearing dark glasses uh, on the plane, as you get to your hotel, in the hotel lobby, or in your room. Or, just as important, you want to block the blue lights. These are the lights that our technology admits, emits. So the light you get from your cell phone, the light you get from your computer, it is far more disruptive to sleep than regular light. And so she recommends Swanwick glasses. I'd never heard of them. I ordered them last night after (laughs) researching this article. They are glasses that don't look too crazy, but block the blue light. 
and help you sleep better. And apparently a whole bunch of different universities have tested this. So the final thing that will keep you up is noise. So how do you find a room in a hotel that will be quiet? Well, you look for places that aren't in major traffic areas. So the the hallway that goes by your hotel room, if it's right next to the elevator, you're going to get elevator sounds and you're also going to get a lot of conversations and a lot of people passing by your door. Ditto for the maid's closet. That's where they put all the supplies, they park their carts in front of it and chat, chat, chat. And if you want to sleep past 7 a.m., that can be a problem. Uh, The ice machine, too, you want to avoid. But Mednick says that because our brains have to be tricked into thinking we're at home, any unusual sound or sound that doesn't come from your bedroom can be disturbing, your home bedroom. So she suggests, even if your hotel room is quiet, to wear earplugs. That way, your reptile brain will not be woken up. Now, I know I just laid a lot of information on you, You can find all of this at fromers.com. I just wrote an article called, uh, kind of a boring title, but it does the work, How to Sleep Well in a Hotel Room. I think I'll say goodbye for today. I thank you so much for listening. Wasn't Maria delightful? Her book is really, really terrific. If you want a good read and there's beautiful photos in it too, do pick it up. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty, Bon voyage. See you next week.